Thank you, buddy. Every time, you're getting better and better and better. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 17. If you will remember, we started chapter 17 last week, and it was a great chapter that we looked at, three really good verses from a practical way. And verse 1 I remember last time it really focused on uh, uh, a dry morsel with quietness is better than all the things that you have in your life with strife. And we, we, we talked about the concept of, commit, uh, of being content, being content with what you have, being satisfied with what you have. I think that's probably one of the key areas in America that we struggle with so much. You know, I've got a list of things over the years that my father and the Lord, Mel Sabaka, he, he was a master at, at putting little phrases together that spoke so much power in them that just related to life. And I'll never forget when he would talk about people being satisfied with where they're at. And I understand as a Christian, you're never really satisfied where you're at, but you're satisfied in the sense that you're waiting on God and you're doing it and you're not getting out of control with it. And he said one time, I'll never forget, he says, he said, you folks think that the grass is greener on the other side of the hill, which was a popular expression back then. But then he'd come back and say, yeah, but wait till you see the water bill. And there's so much truth in that in life. He used to say one time, he says, you know what? I know that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But sometimes he only gives it to you one hamburger at a time. And there's so much truth in that and wisdom in those statements because it deals with the aspect of just us being content. Then we looked at verse 2 and the aspect of, of getting a full reward. How that it says in that passage, uh, one of those little places tucked away that a wise servant uh, over a son uh, that causes shame will reign. And I showed you how that that from a, from a practical or doctrinal aspect, shows you that somebody in the tribulation or maybe an Old Testament saint that did what's right will reign more than, uh, than a child of God uh, who has a glorified body and had everything that he had but didn't do what God wants him to do and winds up at the judgment seat of Christ naked and ashamed. Then we looked at verse 3. And probably one of the greatest times that we've had together for a long time on understanding the aspect of growing through adversity. Looking at the things that are in our life that are negative, you know, the, the finer's pop the, uh, for silver and the furnace for gold. We looked at why God's people go through some of the things that they go through, some of the things that they struggle with. And then one of the greatest examples I, I could ever have given you that really uh, shows you the value of you getting God's wisdom and understanding. How that when you, when you go through the fire and the trials as a child of God down here, and sometimes you go through it because of the fact that you're doing what's right and you're living for God and God takes that in and makes you better. But sometimes we go through those things because of our own stupidity and our disobedience to God. And I told you last week, and I want to reemphasize this because it's such an important thing before I move on. I thought about it all week. I emphasized last week that God loves us so much that when we get out of fellowship with God, he will put us through the fire here. He'll put us through the fire of chastisement here 
so that when we stand someday before God at the judgment seat of Christ, that fire never touches the works that we do. In other words, he puts you through the fire down here to get you right, so the fire at the judgment seat of Christ will never touch you when you stand before God. It's an incredible concept. Absolutely incredible concept. And so many people today, God's people, just do not get that. Now today... We're going to look at another uh, section of verses here, verses 4 through 7, and uh, we're going to make some comments on it, talk about some things. We'll kind of switch back and forth, and, and, and so you can get an understanding of how to put notes in your Bible on this, doctrinally and inspirationally. But it says this, it says, a wicked doer giveth heed to false lips, and a liar giveth ear to a naughty tongue. Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker. And he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers. Excellent speech becometh not a fool, much less do lying lips a prince. Again, some great practical stuff here that we're going to look at. Paul Jones. Would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the offering? To, uh, on the offering. Yeah, we'll take up another offering. You know, ask God's blessing on the sermon today. Our glorious Father, we thank you for this morning that you brought us here. And I was glad when they said, let us go to the, to the house of the Lord. Lord, I just ask you that you open our ears, open our mouths, open our hearts up. <coughs> you placed on Bob's heart today, oh Lord Jesus. So let, us put us in, let us put it into practical use as we go throughout our week, oh Lord Jesus. Oh Lord Jesus, not letting us forget <coughs> what, you, what you will say to us, Lord. We just ask you to bless our time and we'll be sure to give you the praise and the glory. And we ask this in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Now, verse 4 says, A wicked doer giveth heed to false lips, and a liar giveth ear to a naughty tongue. Now, just so you know, doctrinally here, and I want you to be able, and I, I come back and forth on this because many of you are putting your notes in as we go along, and at least I want you to get the context down. Doctrinally here, the context will be the tribulation period. I, I, you need to understand that. We know that the book of Proverbs fundamentally is about a wise man and a foolish man. We know that from a practical standpoint, that's you and me, we can be wise or we're foolish. But in the, but in the book as it's written doctrinally, we know that that's a, that's a reference to the nation of Israel. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 10, talks about ten virgins. We know those virgins to be tribulation saints. And the Bible says that five are wise and five are foolish. Now, there is the, there is the precedent verse that shows you that uh, the tribulation saints go right back to the book of Proverbs doctrinally uh, as the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man, uh, inspirationally, will be you or me who follows the word of God. The foolish man, inspirationally, will be the ones who don't. Doctrinally, the wise man will be the nation of Israel who follows and stays with the Bible. The foolish ones will not. And, of course, it's laid out for you in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 10. And that is a tribulation context, as most of you already know. And you know what? All the material I gave you last week uh, about the finer's fire and all that, doctrinally, that's all the nation of Israel. Last week, I just wanted to make some key points from a practical standpoint and drop the hammer on some things. But, but, in, but in essence, that whole thing last week, 
That whole thing last week uh, uh, was dealing with the nation of Israel. That refining fire of last week that we saw will be the fire of trying of Israel through the tribulation period. And if you don't have the references down for that, put in your notes Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 18 through 22. You can put Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1. Isaiah 31, 9 is another good one. Isaiah 48, 10 and Jeremiah 11, 4. All of those verses will show you Israel being purified as a nation through a refining fire that makes them the nation that God wants them to be. Remember, in your Bible, you have two sets of vessels that God uses. And he talks about those vessels as either being vessels of honor (coughs) or vessels of dishonor. Point being, God uses them either way. When Israel was a vessel for God's honor, God used them that way. But when Israel got away from God and became of God a vessel of dishonor, God used them that way too. Not to their, uh, to their issues and problems, but God always gets the honor and glory out. And it's true with you and me. When you give your life to God and you serve God faithfully and you become a vessel of honor, God uses it that way. But... When you decide you're going to do your own thing, get out of fellowship with God, God your own way, God will come down and through the hand of God in your life, through chastisement of that fire, he'll use it to get honor and glory to show other people. You don't get away with whatever you just want to do. So it's a very key. And of course, Romans chapter 9, for those of you who want to put it in, Romans chapter 9 verses 22 through 23 will be Israel as the vessel. And then of course in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, down in that chapter, you'll find where uh, you and I are likened to this second vessel. The wicked doer, doctrinally, uh, verse 4, uh, that, has, uh, that, uh, that giveth heed to false lips and will uh, be the uh, people who hearken uh, to the Antichrist doctrinally and go after him. Uh, the ones that align with him. And uh, you'll find that these people are listed all the way through the Bible. For you Bible students who really want to get exact on it, uh, you'll actually find uh, these nations listed for you in Psalms chapter 83, verses 1 through 18. Uh, and they line them up to Revelation chapter 13 with the ten nations that line up with the ten horns of, of Daniel's image and all of that stuff. Now, in a practical way, This will be any person. Got the doctrinal out of the way. You're pretty well set on it now. Now, in a practical way, this will be any person who has uh, nothing but uh, hatred in his heart for the things of God, in particular, uh, the Word of God. Look at the word naughty. Now, that's a word that we don't think much of anymore, don't really use much anymore. Uh, It's like much of the English language. Uh, It has been degenerated down from its original meaning, which uh, is very uh, a powerful meaning uh, in the Bible, and you see it. And of course, when you study the development of any language, I don't care what it is, you'll find that language has an origin, a beginning. And then language goes through a development process till it gets to its apex, its highest point, its purest form. And then, because all history follows the first and second law of thermodynamics, things left to themselves uh, began to fall apart, then that language, at some point in time, begins a downward spiral into degeneration. That's what happened to all languages, but in particular, it's what happened to the English language. 
The English language starts around 900, very basic, very, very uh, hard to uh, put it together. It's made up of several different uh, ethnic uh, language groups, and it begins to develop. And you see it by 1200, 1300, 1400, it begins to take some kind of shape. Uh, uh, by the time it gets to the 1600, the English language is at its purest form. The English language at that point is at the top of its apex, and it is, it's in its purest, absolute form. And of course, from that on, slowly, it begins the degeneration to where we're at today. And the English language today has, has lost much of, uh, of its real impact and its perfect meaning. There's a book you ought to read sometime. It was a book written by Dr. William Lloyd Phelps. Uh, he was the professor of English literature in Yale around 1900. And actually, I, I, I couldn't believe it, his book is still in print. In fact, I think that if you go online, there's a place that you can download it free without buying it, I think, if I saw it right. I don't know how to do that, but I think it's on there. And, uh, but his book was called Reading Your Bible. And uh, it was originally published by Macmillan House uh, in New York. And on page 10, 12, and, th and 13, he stated this. Now, he's the, he is the head literature professor of English at Yale in 1900. Here's what he said. The King James 1611 authorized version is the most important book in all of English literature. And he's making this statement because not only was it God's word, but he understood the development of the English language and why God picked 1600 to put out his final Bible in the purest form of language that there was. He said this, no English in all the world is equal to that found in the authorized version. He went on to say, whether the original text was inspired or not, I've never had any doubt in the divine inspiration of the King James 1611 authorized version laid out in the purest form of the English language. Now, that was his professional opinion on it. And anybody knows that the language of that time, many times it's called the Elizabethan English. Many times it's called a Puritan English. Many because of the Puritan. Many times uh, you're going to find that the great classics of Shakespeare and all the great classics of literature, they're classics not just because of who wrote them and what is said, but they're classics because of the style of English that was used. And Shakespeare was a contemporary of your King James Bible, if you uh, don't already know that. But over time, as our language degenerated, Words lost their meaning. Today, the average person looks at the King James Bible, and you know what their biggest gripe is? Their biggest gripe that it has too many archaic words. Too many words that are outdated. Too many words that, are, that don't, they don't know the meanings on. Like that's God's fault. <laughs> Americans are probably the most inept people when it comes to understanding their own language. They don't understand the structure of language. They don't understand the history of their language. They don't understand that apex that when their language was at its purest point. So they look at something like the King James Bible and because they <coughs> see words that they don't understand anymore, they think the Bible is out of date. The Bible is not out of date. The English language is just so corrupt and despicable and so degenerated that it has lost its purity. 
I mean, I can't, I can't understand how hard it would be for a foreigner to come to America to learn our language because you realize that 85, probably 60% of our language is slang words. Can you imagine a Chinese guy coming over and somebody saying, hit the road, man? <laughs> Can you imagine that, what would be going through his head? He, don't bug me, man. I mean, our language has, has turned into an absolute cesspool of, of things that just in its degeneration. And over time, you know, uh, these words lose their port. And I've told you many, many times the absolute importance of understanding that the key to your Bible, hands down, the key to your Bible are the words in your Bible. You change those words. I talked about virgins a little while ago out of Matthew chapter 25. Now, there's a classic example. There's a lot of people out there that believe Matthew chapter 25 about the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. And in the story of that, it looks like somebody gets left behind when a rapture takes place. Now, people who have no clue about the Bible will follow this text in Matthew chapter 25 to prove that you can lose your salvation as a Christian because in that passage, looks like somebody does, and they do. But the key to that passage is just one word. It's the word virgins, plural. Because wherever you find the word virgins, plural, in the Bible, the context is always going to be tribulation saints. Now, the church is likened to a virgin, singular. One little difference between an S on one word and a not an S on the other word Separate your Bible into two different dispensations. Now, who would believe that? Nobody with a college education would believe that. But I'm telling you, the key to your Bible are the words. Well, I mean, yeah, I know you do. You're the exception to the rule, Bob. A Bible college education, I meant to say, because I'm coming down that road. You're a Top Gun guy. You believe everything. <laughs> By the way, we're still going to auction off the sunglasses and the gum he was chewing in that movie. (laughs) Back at our bookstore, we sell a dictionary called Webster's Dictionary, the 1828 edition. Webster, Noah Webster was a saved man. He wrote most of the curriculum for the early school system. And uh, his dictionary was the first dictionary. We sell it in a bookstore because for those who really want to get down, I mean, there is studying the Bible and then there is studying the Bible. And when you really want to get down to your own language and you want to find out the key words, I mean, I have people all the time uh, that come over and see me one-on-one and they'll have a list of three or four words that they don't understand in the Bible. And that's how you learn them. But Webster's 1828 edition, not only does he give you the definition of the words that are so degenerated today, in most cases he actually gives you the, 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 the reference in the Bible that, that shows it being a saved guy and he understanding the importance of the Bible and the Word of God. And I can't impress upon you enough the importance of keeping the pure words and their definitions alive in your life. 
In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, the Bible says when the Lord comes back and he establishes the millennial reign of Christ, he is going to establish for the nation of Israel a pure language. God is a stickler on languages being pure when he does something. And of course, it's a, it's a, it's a great concept. Now you take the word naughty. It's been reduced as a cute little word with no real terrible meaning along with it. You know, she was a naughty girl. She's a naughty guy. We, we don't use that for, you know, a serial killer. Well, he was naughty, Your Honor. No, we, we don't, it, it, it's lost its punch. <laughs> Yet in the Bible, the word naughty, it's only found six times in your Bible. And in the Bible, the word naughty is always associated with the Antichrist and his crowd. You'll find it in Proverbs uh, 6, 2, Proverbs 11, 6, uh, James chapter 1, verse 21, 1 Samuel uh, 17, 28, Proverbs 7, uh, 17, 14, and then again in Jeremiah 24, 2. You'll find that the reference, the context will always be connected one way or the other to the Antichrist. It's a reference to a wicked man who does evil, speaks evil, sows evil, and in all that he does destroys all that God is trying to do. And when people listen to him, his bad speech, his bad doctrine, when they give ear to it or give heed to it, uh, like 17.4 says, they're going to follow that line of teaching and thinking, and he, uh, he has no defense against it. And, uh, you know, because he does not have God's wisdom or our understanding. You know, I thought this week of a great illustration to give you to illustrate this. And there's a many I could do. But since we have been talking about, uh, over the last couple of weeks, the history of, of us as Baptists and, the, and where our roots and J. Frank Norris and how it all uh, ties together and all of those things. You know, I thought, uh, since that's so fresh in our minds, the greatest example to illustrate this would actually be the Bible college movement of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And it's something time period where most of you were not born. You remember I told you that when J. Frank Norris left the Southern Baptist Church, he started the World Baptist Fellowship. He started his own Bible college within that fellowship. A little bit later, about 1949, as some of you now know who have done your own study, somebody had a book here today uh, on J. Frank Norris. Who showed me that book? Who, yeah, over here, got a good book on it by Lewis Eminger. And uh, uh, when they split, the Baptist Bible Fellowship started. They started their own Bible college. And then from that point on, you had all kinds of fellowships started. You had Southwide, you had East-West, you had North-South, you had everybody had a fellowship. And they kind of split off and became their own little identities known as a fellowship of believers. Every one, and they were made up of churches, maybe 100, 200 churches, and it grew. Every one of those fellowships at some point in time started a Bible college. Every one of them. You know them today. Uh, the BBF was the first one down in Springfield. Later on, it developed into a BBF out east, out in Boston. And then it became uh, a BBF West with Jack Baskin out in California. We had down in Tennessee, Tennessee Temple. We had Jerry Falwell with Liberty Baptist. We had Pacific Coast Baptist. We had uh, Cedarville in Cedarville, Ohio. We already had Bob Jones University, but then it spun off into Pensacola Christian College. 
Jack Hiles, who in Hammond, Indiana, who had a church back in his day of 10,000 people. He started his own Bible college out of his fellowship. And you're going to find that uh, you already had Moody Bible uh, College. You had right up the road here, you had Calvary Bible College. And then you had downtown, the Midwest Theological Seminary. They were everywhere. And every fellowship started their own college. And hundreds of thousands of kids from the 1950s up to even including today, hundreds of thousands of kids were sent to a Bible college or a university to learn God's word and instead came out losing the very Bible that they went in with. It was one of the most phenomenal things you ever saw in your life. And I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, there was not a good one in the bunch. They may have had good things, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they all have the same problem. And the reason for that, I don't have time to get into it this morning, but catch me sometime on a Thursday night and I will be glad to elaborate on that for you. But there wasn't a good one in a the, in the bunch. Here's what part of the problem was. They were never local church controlled. In the Bible, God's program is a local church. When you step outside that local church, then you're not under the same rules and you can do whatever you want to do. They brought in college professors from a wide variety of different places. And those college professors, most of them were, were retreads who, who, never, who failed in ministry. They never built a church. Most of them hadn't won a soul to Christ in 35 years. It was a lot like taking a one-legged man and putting him in charge of teaching Olympic running. They severely handicapped. But the real problem was because there was no filtering process. There was no church. There was no structure. There was no doctrine. There was no watchdog overlooking it. These professors came in from every walk of life. They paid more attention to their credentials of where they were educated than they did what they believed about the Bible. Hey, I've been there. I've seen churches that look for a pastor when they candidated a guy. They wanted to know where he went to school, how much education he had. They never asked him one question about Bible. They never asked him one question, what are you going to teach this church? They never asked him one question about how many souls he run. It was all about the academics. This was the mindset during that time. These professors came in, and they absolutely destroyed the kids' faith. Many of them were all millennial. Many of them didn't believe the rapture. Many of them were Calvinist. Many of them were, were completely out of touch with the real mainline Baptistic doctrines of the Bible. But the institution was so big. They had lost the concept of a local church mentality that keeps a structure. It was now a school. It was now a university. It was now a college. And with all that came all the different things that, that comes along with that. And there was no control on the influence of the teachers. Now, I got to just say this for a moment. Back when the Reformation took place, the Roman Catholic Church got its back broke. And God kicked the door open to the great movement of the missionary movement of everybody coming to the United States and England. And it just was the King James Bible going around the world about four or five times. Greatest period in church history. Immediately after that happened in Europe, 
the Catholic Church started what was commonly called, known, the Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation was started by uh, the Jesuit movement. You know, uh, in the Catholic circles today, you know the Pope, Pope Francis. And Pope Francis, to everybody's mind, is the Pope that everybody looks at who is in charge of the Roman Catholic Church. That is an absolute smokescreen. The real controller of the Catholic Church is the black pope. And I'm not talking about the color of his skin. I'm talking about the Jesuit general who is over all of the militant intellectual arm of the Roman Catholic Church. That was much like Obama thinks he's in charge of America. And some things he is. But you know who really is in charge of what goes on in America that you never hear about? It's the deep dark CIA guys that nobody ever hears the stories of what they do. That's the Jesuit movement. The Jesuit movement came into being to stop the Reformation by beginning a counter-Reformation. And what they did was is that these Jesuit priests feigned becoming Protestants went into Protestant seminaries in Europe graduated from those seminaries, then took churches, and slowly over the next 100, 200 years, began to take those churches right back to Rome. It was a movement that they infiltrated every university in Europe, and by the next 200 years, Europe is back into apostasy. When a Jesuit movement comes into the United States, it comes in through New Orleans. New Orleans is, is the city for Orleans over in France, which was a Jesuit hotspot. They, they centered there, and Biola University was their key spot. That was their, that was their headquarters in America. They tried to get America back uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the Revolutionary War uh, by, and, and before that, but it didn't ever work. And so they went through an educational mindset just like they did in Europe. And if you don't think, if you don't think that that movement infiltrated in to the Bible colleges in this country... You don't have a clue. You better be careful crossing the street. You're going to get hit with a car. The devil never misses the trick to destroy that Bible. And he has one of the greatest single arms that you have ever seen to do that. And it was the Oxford movement in Europe that later came on into this country. I could take you on national television right now and show you the guys and the people that most people say people think are the greatest conservative people standing for values you ever saw in your life. And if you just listen and watch very carefully, you'll see the Jesuit t-shirt underneath with their suit and tie. They've infiltrated everything. And they certainly infiltrated the Bible colleges. They would have old preachers, good men, come into these Bible colleges. And every day they'd have a chapel service. The tapes that you can find of Bob Jones Sr. preaching are the chapel services. You don't find many when he was out on the road just tearing it up because those churches were small churches and back then they didn't have the elaborate systems that we have to tape. But the, all you get from him is the chapel services. All of these Bible colleges every morning had chapel services and they would bring in good preachers and these preachers would come in and really preach. 
and he wanted to hold the kids accountable, so they had good guys come in, started every morning with a hellfire damnation message and preaching. I had kids that I knew who were part of that, friends of mine who were in the ministry now who were part of that, and they told me that they would go to class, and the rest of the day, the rest of the day, those professors would rip down, tear apart everything that preacher said. That's what they did. And the verse says, giving heed to false lips and giving ear to a naughty tongue. Naughty now being explained to you. People think I'm against higher education. I'm really not. I think that if you get a chance to get a college education and you really need it, great. I think that uh, I think education is, is good. I think that uh, uh, I think that education without salvation is damnation. But I think that education in itself, higher education, is a good thing. Where I have the problem with higher education is when it comes to Bible colleges. And sometimes I'm painted with a broad brush uh, uh, things like that, and it's simply not true. If you're going to be a doctor, I want you to be the best student you could be. <laughs> If you're going to be a lawyer, I want you to be the best student you can be. If you're going to be a, uh, uh, you know, a dentist, be the best student you can be. I, I want that. But when it comes to the Bible, this is where I have a problem. And somebody asked me one time, why do you have such a problem with Bible college? And my answer is simple. I have five reasons why I'm against Bible colleges, and they're the five fundamental lies by which Bible colleges are built on. I'll give them to you. The first one lie that they teach to these kids when they go in is that the Greek and Hebrew are the key to the Bible. Nothing can be farther from the truth. I don't have time to elaborate on it this morning, but I would be glad to at some point on a Thursday night or whatever, but that is simply not true. The second lie that they put out is only the original manuscripts were inspired. Let me just say something to you. There isn't one verse in the Bible anywhere, any place, any time, that says the original manuscripts were ever inspired. Now, I believe they were, but you can't go to the Bible to put that. And don't go over there where it says all Scripture was given by inspiration of God because the original manuscripts were not Scripture. When it says all Scripture was given by inspiration of God, that isn't talking about the original manuscript. They were not in Scripture form. That's something else. That's right. The third thing... You can't get a perfect translation of the Bible. And that's what they teach these kids. They don't teach that the King, just the King James Bible has got errors in it. They teach all the Bibles got error in it. And they teach you that the only way you can ever know the Bible is by learning two languages that nobody speaks anymore. And then you finding out what your Bible says by that. Now imagine. Imagine God giving you a Bible that he's going to hold you accountable for what you read or what you don't read and know and what you don't know. And then putting that key to that Bible in a language that you could never master both languages in your life. And then he's going to judge you by it. It's ridiculous. The fourth thing is that they teach these kids that higher education, biblical scholarship, if you will, holds the keys, or is the key, to learning the Bible. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth again. And the last thing that they teach is the King James Bible has many errors in it. Those are the five lies that, that 
Bible colleges put out that will destroy a young man or a young lady's faith in that word of God. And I have seen it over the last 45 years of my life. I've seen those go in. I've seen them go into those institutions with the Bible. And I've seen those same young men who had a great future, had a great ability, come out and somebody stole their Bible from them. It's just that simple. The Jesuit movement was so profound in the Christian education as it was in secular education to to this day. To this day, people who graduate from a Bible college or a secular school, they'll look back and they'll say with loving affection, well, uh, yeah, Baptist Bible College or Tennessee Temple, that's my alma mater. That's where I came from. And they look at that school as my alma mater with affection. But if you look at that word alma mater, it simply means alma means virgin and mater means mother. It means virgin mother. Because everything you get was started with a group of people who wanted to bring you back, yes, to the virgin mother. And we're just too stupid to see that today. Now Bible colleges are non-biblical. First time you find a Bible college in the Bible is Acts chapter 19. First time you find it. The school of one Tyrannus. And those guys are teaching against the teachings of Paul. The first time you find an institution of higher learning getting together to put the Bible together, you're finding teaching somebody the Bible outside a local church. It's against the Word of God. God's institution for learning the Bible is a New Testament church. You'll find at most Baptist churches that have a, a program to learn the Bible, like Dr. Ruckman's or like what we have here, uh, they're not called a Bible college. They're called a Bible institute. Uh, they're not set up where you can, you can, uh, you can, you're dialed in to Luther Rice or you're dialed in to somebody else over here that is a, an apostate. It's local church orientated. It's taught and by men who were in that church who Everybody knows what they believe. It doesn't vary from the doctrine. It stays with the truth. And young men and young ladies get taught the Bible. Bible colleges are non-biblical, so they produce a non-biblical Christianity. It's just that simple. We're going to finish up uh, probably, uh, maybe not this year, but maybe next year, our, uh, we'll finish up our, our people ministry. We're up there in the... In the Second Chronicles now, I think so. Uh, and as the farther we get into it, you know, the the faster it'll go because we once you get out of the Old Testament, you're you get out of the stories, and now you're dealing with more principles. But once we get finished with that, whenever we do, when we started our church here, we started a three-year Bible Institute program, and most of you who are hauling the mail today went through that institute. When we get done uh, with that, probably uh, the next year, we will reinstitute that three-year Bible Institute and bring everybody else through that wants to come through to get up to speed on it. That's what local churches do. And so, Bible colleges and that mentality, they, they, they're based on the lies and the false teaching that kids will listen to, they'll lend their ears to, and it appeals to the number one problem of man. The old nature. And that is the fact that, as Satan said, 14, Isaiah 14, 14, I will be like the Most High God. It plays to the old nature of all of us that we want to be smarter than God. 
And boy, you give man that opportunity, and he'll cloak that in a religious apostasy, make it look like it's the real deal. And when people cannot have the wisdom and understanding to discern it, they listen to it, they hear the false lies, they hear everything they say, and they give heed to it. Five things that you want to understand about liars and lying. There's more things I've observed over the years in dealing with people. A liar is always boastful and extravagant with what he says or she says. It's never just a fact. It's always embellished with everything that is on. I, I, the standard joke is that you know how to tell when this guy's lying, know how. His mouth moves. I mean, sometimes they get that bad. The second thing, the worst lie and the most dangerous lies are the ones we tell ourselves. And really believe to get what we want in life. Sin will be like many different tools. You go into a tool shop and you can find a tool to do whatever job. You can find a sin that will lead you anywhere you want to go. But lying is the one handle that will fit every one of those tools. There will be no sin without lies. There is no worse lie in all the world. Not that lies are any worse than other lies, but uh, there is no worse lie in all the world than the lies being told about God and His Word. And if you want people to believe something that they normally would not believe, just put it into the realm of Christian higher education and lie to them and they'll believe it. The yea hath God said society. All right, look at verse 5. Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker. And he that is glad at calamity shall not be unpunished. Now again, doctrinally, just so we can get it all straight here, this will be a reference to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel right now is the scourge of all nations on earth. Have been for the last 3,000 years, will be right up to the uh, coming of Christ, and then that all changes in the millennium. You're going to find that in Matthew chapter 5, uh, you find the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is, shows you the poor spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. Poor. I mean, just really destitute. And uh, you'll look in Matthew chapter 25, verse 32. One of the seven judgments in the Bible is the judgment of the nations. At the judgment of the nations, God actually judges the nations. It's called the judgment of the sheep and the goats there. God actually judges the nations how that they helped the nation of Israel during the tribulation period or how they did not. And uh, it's a thing where, uh, to them, uh, that's where salvation, one of the ways that salvation comes in the tribulation. You, you get left in a rapture. You haven't heard a clear presentation of the gospel. We talked about that Thursday night. You go through the tribulation period. If you find yourself helping the Jews, Bible says you, God puts you right into the kingdom. You don't help the Jews and go against them, go right into the lake of fire. You see, God's fundamental principle with Israel was found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where he says, I'll bless those that bless thee, and I'll curse those that curse thee. And in Romans chapter 9 and 10, uh, a great question is asked there, uh, you know, where you find about God is dealing with the nation of Israel. We saw it, chapter 9, 10, 11, a couple of weeks ago, when one of our guys up in Lincoln asked that question, Mitch did. And I, I showed you Romans 11.1. 1. God asked the question, has God cast away his people? And the answer is certainly he hasn't. 
Romans 11.25 says that I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceit. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And then so all Israel shall be saved. Right now, Israel is destitute. Right now, and in the tribulation period, book of Proverbs, she's going to be destitute. And the people who make fun of her, mock her, give her a tough time, or are glad at the calamities that she goes through during that period of time, God's going to judge them. Most people miss certain premier moments in the Bible. Romans chapter 11, that is read there, verse 25 and 26, really shows you that, uh, uh, that we're disposed to understand our relationship to the nation of Israel as a church. Many churches today don't like the nation of Israel. All the nations on the earth are turning their backs on the nation of Israel. <clears throat> One of the reasons why uh, we're facing what we're facing in America and around the world is because of the world's uh, doing exactly what this verse is saying they're doing. But you know, over in John chapter 19, verse 27, you find a really incredible concept. Christ is on the cross. We know from our former studies that the apostle John is a type of the Christian, type of the church. We know that from all the other things that we've studied about him. We also know that Jesus' mother, Mary, is a type of the nation of Israel. We know that. Very clear in the Bible. And while Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross, and we're actually coming to an end of a dispensation. We're coming to the end of God dealing with Israel and then moving into the church. So on that cross, we're faced with the end of the dispensation of God dealing with the nation of Israel anymore and moving to the church, even though there's some technical things that have to happen. But fundamentally, that's where you're at. When Christ is hanging on that cross, and he knows he's going to die and go back to heaven and no longer be here, he looks at the woman who is his mother, who is a type of the nation of Israel, and he looks at the man, John, who is a type of the church. And you know what he says? He says, Woman, behold your son. He gave his mother, John, for the watch care because he was going to die on the cross. You know what that means? That means that we as the church, type of John, have the watch care of the nation of Israel during the church age. He gave his mother to John, a type of the church. And that, from that point on, the Bible says that he took her in and he took care of her. Our job, your job, and my job in the church aid is not to be ignorant with God concerning Israel. We as the church have the watch care for the nation of Israel. Bible says that for, they'll be your enemies. They'll be your enemies. But for the gospel's sake, you're not their enemy. Why? You have understanding and wisdom. So it's an incredible thing when you look at this verse doctrinally. Now, look at the same verse inspirationally. This is a reference to a man who, who makes fun of poor people, mocks them, glad uh, or glad when a calamity befalls somebody uh, who, who's a fool. And the Bible says that that, they, that, uh, that shall not be unpunished, the Bible says. In life we say what goes around comes around. And we all know what that means. When you understand the concept of Philippians chapter 4, verse 16, where it says whatever state you're in, therewith to be content, and you get the concept of contentment down like we did last week, talked about it. Uh, when you understand one of the greatest doctrines in the Bible is the doctrine of standing in state. It has to be paramount in your life to ever really go anywhere with God to understand that great doctrine. But when you understand what state you're in, and I'm not talking about Missouri, 
I'm talking about the state you're in right now in your flesh. And you understand you're to be content with that. You realize that poverty is not always a bad thing. Poverty becomes a bad thing to us who have everything and don't want to lose it. Because too many of us, poverty is a terrible thing. Because to us, poverty is not about you and God. It's not about being content. Poverty is about us losing all the money, the big houses, and the material possessions that we have. And America lives in fear of that. You know, in my life, I've always, I've always tried to stick up for the little guy who couldn't stick up for himself, especially in the Bible, but just really in life. I was eating at Panera one time oh, a couple number of years ago, and I was sitting there eating by myself. I was eating, and there was a kid, three tables over there, and he, I could tell that he was not a, you know, he was a, you know, your, he wasn't a very popular kid in school. You know, he was the type that uh, gets bullied a lot. And uh, across the table from him uh, were three guys and two girls who obviously knew him. And he was sitting there by himself. And those boys obviously wanted to show off for those girls. And they were, they were saying things to him. They were throwing things in his food as he was eating. And the kid obviously was not able to defend himself in any way, shape, or form. And he was sitting there, you know, and he, I felt sorry for the kid. And these guys were just giving it to him and laughing, you know, and the girls were giggling like, oh, you're my hero, you're such a tough guy, you know, and all that stuff. And I took it about as long as I could. And so I, I you know, probably done one on my part, I could have been in jail because the kid was probably underage, but I didn't really care. I walked over to the table and I said, look, I said, I've been sitting here eating my dinner or my lunch, whatever it was. And I said, this little guy over here isn't bothering anybody. Now, you've got three guys here, and he's all by himself. And obviously, you're all bigger, tougher, stronger, and real more man than he is. But I said, I want to tell you something. I said, I've had it. And I said, if maybe you want to you start bullying somebody your own size. They just shut up, man. <laughs> then I went back and got my food, went over and sat down with that kid. Amen. And I just finished eating and talking to him. But it didn't bother him anymore. I can't stand bullies. I can't. And I see some little guy out there, that can't, or gal who can't defend himself, and somebody else, I, I just, I'll pick up their cause all the time. And, I, and I'll tell you something. <clears throat> I learned that from the Lord. Because he's always sticking up for the little guy that couldn't stick up for himself. You know who he stuck up for? He stuck up for me. Amen. <laughs> I couldn't stick up for myself. He stuck up for me. He was always sticking up for the guy or the woman who couldn't stand for themselves. He, in history, he stood up for Israel when Israel couldn't stand for himself. One time there was a woman at the well who was taken in adultery. They want to stone her. He stuck up for her. I mean, he told her to go and sin no more, but he stuck up, stood up for her. He stood up for the thief on the cross. I mean, they're all guilty except him. One over in this size says, you know, uh, Father, uh, forgive me, you know, uh, forgive me. And the other guy laughs at him or whatever. And the Lord, there was a guy who could not stand up for himself. Christ himself was being crucified. But in that hour, he said to that guy, this day thou shalt be with me. He stood up for the guy who could not stand up for himself. I remember one time there was a woman with an alabaster box who took the precious ointment that cost a lot of money and put it on his feet. One of the disciples got upset with that, saying, well, we should take that money to give it to the poor. Jesus said, let her alone. 
Let her alone. She's doing, she's doing a good thing here. He's always sticking up for the little guy. Always was. He never, he always came to the rescue. And you talk about the, you talk about the best one, wait till the second coming of Christ. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Old Mel Sabaka used to tell the story of a little boy that he'd go to school every day. And every day at school, this big bully would, uh, would take his lunch money, beat him up, push him around. And every day when he'd come out of school, that bully would be waiting for him, shake him down. Well, one day the little guy got out, of, got out of school about five minutes early, and he didn't see the bully, and he started going down the road. About half a block, he looked around, and the bully had just come out and was looking for him. The bully saw him. The bully took off after him. That little kid started running for home about five blocks away. That little kid was running as hard as he could. And that bully was bigger than him, had longer legs than him, and he was catching on him. That little kid turned the corner and he saw his house down the end of the street. He just running like his heart's going to come out his mouth. He hears that bully gaining on him behind him. That kid, that, that kid opened that gate in his front yard and got in over the thing. He looked around as he went around the house. That bully just scaled that fence right over that thing. And just as he got her to the back door and he went to get in the house, that bully grabbed him by the arm. And just about that time, the back door opened and his big brother just got home from the Marine Corps. <laughs> that little kid looked at the bully and says, you want to hit me now? You want to take my lunch money now? You want to beat me up now? You want to push me around now? And let me tell you something, folks. You'll get kicked around in this world. There'll be some big bullies in this world, but I got some good news for you. Wait till your big brother gets here. Amen. He'll straighten it out. It's always sticking up for guys like us. That's why I love him. That's why we need to stick up for each other. There'll be times when you're weak that somebody else is strong. Stick up for them. Stand up for them. Fight for them. Go the distance when they can't go the distance themselves. Why? Because there'll be a time in your life when you can't. It's just that simple. You know, when you look at this in the Bible, you'll find there's some key words that, that come to, with Israel and Christ. There'll always be negative words. The words like oppressed. The words like poor. Mourning, meekness. They're always associated with The nation of Israel has been the butt of jokes and people making fun of them, hating them for the last 3,000 years. You know, I grew up here in the standard joke, you know. Jews always are about money. And, 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 and Gentiles hate Jews. They hate Jews because of the fact that no matter where they're at, that's one of the, the problems that Adolf Hitler had with them. Germany's in the middle of depression, and they're, they're, it costs $6 million for a loaf of bread, Reichmark for a loaf of bread. They're in the middle of a depression, and the Jews have money enough to put gold in their mouth, in their teeth, and, and, and they just drove them crazy. But I grew up, the standard joke is, you know, that Frank Sinatra sang Ave Maria, and 10,000 Christians became Catholic. Mahalia Jackson stood up and sang God Bless America and 10,000 Catholics became Protestants. Eddie Fisher, who's a Jew, stood up and sang There's a Gold Mine in the Sky. 20,000 Jews joined the Air Force. You see, that's the kind of stuff you get. <laughs> I like that. You don't get that very much. but Wrong dispensation, I guess. I don't know. <clears throat> the word oppressed, poor, mourning, meekness, all manner of evil, forsaken, persecuted, reviled, afflicted. 
That's what you find with poor people. That's what Israel is portrayed as. But it's true. And for poor, the poor in life, you know, for me, it's always been a great reality check. One of the things I love about the homeless ministry, the street ministry, we're going down today, you know, restart, 18th and Cherry, and all the teams that go out. And I, and I get it. I understand. 98% of those people are in the fix they're in because they went against the Word of God in their life. I get it. They're in places called turnaround. They're in places called restart. Because those places, those institutions, signify that they're trying to get a new start, trying to get turned around. But, but you and I know that most of them never will. I mean, Jesus said in John 12, 8, that the poor will always have with us. You're always going to have the poor with you. But they're there for a reason. Hey, every time I go down, and I will this afternoon, and drive around, see what's going on, I thank God every time I'm down there that I did what I needed to do with the Word of God. Because I want to tell you something. Everything in my life that I have is only because everything that I have, I am if I'm anything, but everything that is good in my life that I have, every blessing that I have, is simply because the blessings of that book work. It's true, amen. How I ever got where I'm at, how I ever got here, how I ever stay here, I'll never know except that book. And the greatest piece of advice I could ever give anybody you take care of the book, the book will take care of you. It's just that simple. Most churches wouldn't do what we're going to do this afternoon. I know the big churches, I've seen them before, you know, they go to a place like Hy-Vee or Price Chopper and they park a big truck out front and they get all their people to come there to the grocery store and as people are going in, they give them a little bag and a little flyer and say, when you're buying groceries today, if you would just put four or five items in here and pay for them and bring them out to us. Oh, this, all this is food is going down to harvesters or food pantries or going down to the homeless people. And, uh, you know, and they do that and they, they all go out afterwards, you know, they all go out to eat and they're all satisfied, you know, like, man, we did a good thing today, feeling all good about themselves. You know, <clears throat> one time there was a missionary to China from America. And he, had, he, went to the, he went to China on the mission field. And he'd been there for five, six, seven years. And he hadn't won one person to Christ. He was a typical missionary. Wore a three-piece suit. Little American flag on his lapel. And after four, five, six years, he became so despondent. He became so desperate. Finally, one day, as he walked through that market with thousands of Chinese there, and he couldn't reach one of them. He found an old man and he sat down and he poured his heart out. And he said to that old man, old man, I have come here with the gospel. I come from America. I do not understand why your people don't want to hear the message that I have. That old Chinese man looked at him and he says, Mr. American missionary, you want to know why nobody comes to you? It's simple. You love our souls, but you don't love us. He'd never spend the time to become one of them. 
He always looked at them through the air of his superiority that I'm an American, you're a Chinese, you're inferior, I'm here, you need what I have. People will love people's souls today, maybe. But you cannot love those you don't know. But they'll never get down with them in their world to get to be their friend. I watch some of you do exactly that. I watch you guys. I watch you guys down at the library. You got that system so greased and oiled, it's unbelievable. Here we are in a place where everybody else is going to the court and going to here and going to there. And the city's trying to stop everybody taking food down here. Here you got the very security guards down at that library protecting you, guarding you, making sure nobody messes with you. Why? Because you took time to be their friend. Why? Because you take extra care to take their lunch down to them two Sundays a month. I watch you guys at 18th and Cherry. I go down there and you're sitting along the road with them talking. Some on the curb, some on the wall. You're just talking with them. I watch Will's team with the young kids out when they go down to that bus stop and all the way up and down. They're engaging people. They're talking to people. It isn't just a, here, read this. They're actually building a bridge between our world to their world. The river team goes down there tromping through the, through the jungles of, uh, of the river bottoms down there. Finding those homeless people in tents and camps. There was a time when, before that guy got killed down there, that, and they bulldozed the camp out, and that guy got saved by one of our teams the week before he got killed. They had little cities down there. We were going down holding church services down there Sunday afternoon. You can't love people that you don't know. And it takes more than just, I love your soul, brother. Most preachers follow that same mentality. They'll stand up at the top of the stairs in their church, look at all the people that are struggling down here, preach their message. In essence, the message is, get up here where I'm at so you can be like me. Then you'll be solve your problems. None of them ever think about walking down those stairs, putting their arm around somebody and walking them up those steps one step at a time. No wonder people feel burned with churches. They do get burned with churches. I've told a thousand people a thousand times, one thing about this church, as long as you do what's right and want to do what's right, this church will never hurt you. There's no politics here. There's nobody any better than anybody else. Everybody puts your pants on the same way everybody else does. That's why the women wear slacks here. I'm not sure why I said that, but it just kind of jumped in there. But you know what? It is what it is. We're here for you. We don't want anything from you. I don't, personally. The Lord does. We're not here to get an upper hand to get something that you got. We're here for you because you have a need. Here it is. No politics. Nobody's going to hurt you. Nobody's going to talk about you. Nobody's going to get behind your back. The moment they do, we got a one-way bus ticket to Topeka, Kansas. Living proof that hell is full and dead men walk the earth. Now look at the Proverbs 17, 6 here. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their father. Now there's three things here we want to look at. Doctrinally, first of all, we'll get that going. 
This will be to the nation of Israel that was based on families. Most people don't understand that. Most people go through the chronology of the Old Testament. You see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and you see all of those guys. We study those guys, but most of the time, you know what we miss? We miss that that was a line of families. They weren't just guys. They were all connected. They were all families. And when God called Abraham back there in Genesis 18, 19, you know what God called him on the basis of? He says, I know this guy. I know he'll do what's right with his family. And his family went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob right down the line. And the Lord Jesus Christ, at the first coming of Christ, came out of that long line of families. He said in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, concerning the nation of Israel, that all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. He said in Genesis 18, 18, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the families. You see, God's plan in the Old Testament was to reach the world through the family unit. And in a practical way, the second thing, it's about us as Christians winning and getting people saved through a new birth. And them being our sons and grandsons in the Lord. You know, we sit here and we talk about our history like we did the last couple of weeks. And I talk about my father, Lord, Mel Sabaka, his father, Lord, Mel Sabaka, and his father, Lord, you pile, you know, right on down the line. And we talk about those things, but most of you don't probably stop and think that many of you, if not most of you, Mel Sabaka was your great, Mel Sabaka was your grandfather. And Pete Ruckman is your great-grandfather. And Hugh Pyle is your great-great-great-great-grandfather, spiritually speaking. And the process is like Paul and Timothy and Titus and Philemon. The people that we win to Christ, they actually become our, our sons and daughters in the Lord, spiritually speaking. And uh, it's a thing. I've had, I've had dads that married a wife where there were other children from another marriage that were not his. And I don't get it. It, 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 to to many of them, it always seems to be a problem, you know, well, they're not my children. I really don't know how to be a father to them because they're biologically not mine. I always tell them, come on Sunday, I have 250 people here that are not my biological children, yet I find a way to be a father to them. Because it isn't about whether biologically you produce them or not. And they may not be your biological children, but they can be your spiritual children. And very honestly, that's a lot better than just to be a lot biological factor. That's where you begin to take them in. But there's some things you have to do. Amen. I'm not your biological father, but you're my son. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I'll take you. <laughs> Call me Pops. Many of you do. Some of you call me Dad. Call me Grandpa, I'll kill you. <laughs> it's a process that goes on. It's a process that goes on. And you don't have to biologically produce children to be a spiritual father to them. It's, it's just so simple. You realize that, you know what? I, I, have, I have things I can do. I mean, being a bio spiritual father is a lot better than a biological father. You don't have to pay for anything. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a thing where 
two key words here that you look at. Well, let's look at the third application first. The third application also lends itself to our own literal families. Just talk about that for a moment. Families ministering together. Family today is, is pulled apart on every side. Families are being destroyed today. And the reason is because just as the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the unit was the family, in the New Testament, the unit's the family. And your family, godly line, or your family, an ungodly line. And many families today out there are looking for someone to help them find their way. And nobody can help a struggling family like, a fa like, a, like another family that's got it all together. And I say that completely knowing that there's no perfect families. I get that. Just imperfect families working daily to perfect themselves for the work of the ministry. That's all. And the verse says, children, children. That's that third generation of establishing your family and ministry together. You, your kids, and then their kids form a ministry team together. Two key words that I said a minute ago. The word crown and the word glory. Aimed right at the judgment seat of Christ. Now I know we all envision the judgment seat of Christ in our own way. And I, I get that. I mean, the very best definition in the Bible is left somewhat to your imagination. Of not all the details are given. But wouldn't it be a wonderful thing that when, if God called uh, 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 up, up to the gentleman seat of Christ, that he called the family up? You stand there with your family, holding hands, looking at the Lord. No divorce in your family, no split up in your family. Kids went to church, ministered with you all your life, was a ministry team, third generation, fourth generation. The reason why it says third generation, because usually the parents die off after that, and it doesn't get much for them. It's not that it, the generation ends. It picks up again with the children. But it's a thing where, wow, what a thing that would be. The whole family coming up and standing there at the judgment seat of Christ as a team. Look at verse 7. Excellent speech becometh not a fool, much less do lying lips a prince. In other words, when you listen to someone speak, does what they say really come from them? Or are they just telling you what you want to hear? In politics, it's called talking points. A candidate will get up and give a rousing speech. Crowd goes nuts, interrupts 10 times with their applause. I sit there and understand that he just tells them what they want to hear. He has no intention of keeping anything that he's saying. He's just saying what a paid speechwriter wrote for him to say so he can get the people on his side. And in churches, it's the same thing. Most preachers do the exact same thing the same way. They just tell their people what they want to hear. And second... Second Corinthians 4 verses 1 through 2 this is called handling the word of God deceitfully they keep the illusion of truth going where there is no truth I'd say and this is a tough one if you don't have wisdom to understand I'd say that probably 99% of Christianity today churches today are just a sham and somebody would say well I, I, I take issue with that of course you would of course you would you bought into it and you've given heed to the false lies and you believe everything they say you never stop and look in your Bible and see, is what the guy telling me the truth? You just assume he is. Their real purpose is material things. Buildings, money, health clubs, restaurants, coffee shops, gymnasiums. Well, they don't even call them churches anymore. Now they're campuses. Oh, yeah, and you're fine right up to the time you need something, and then you'll see how insignificant you really are. Just go try to talk to your pastor sometime and ask him, you got a problem. He'll farm you out to some second stringer. 
try to sit down with him and say, well, can I spend an hour with you learning the Bible? Well, he'd look at you and say, I don't have time for that. You know, it's a great little truth tucked away in the book of Revelation. And I love things like this. Found in Revelation chapter 18. In that little passage there, 11 through 13. And it's talking about the church of Satan. I get it. Babylon mystery religion. But it's worth looking at because, boy, there are some things that are very similar here. And in life, it shows you the priorities of this church when it comes to ministry. Now look at, look at Revelation chapter uh, uh, 18. Look at verse 11, and I'll read it for you. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth her merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and of fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and uh, uh, ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beast and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. Now you see that thing? First thing it says, first thing is all about merchandise. That's things. And then the first thing in verse 12 that they want is gold. See that? And then you go down through that list. You see the last thing they care about? Verse 13, souls of men. Now that's the exact same mindset with every church, big or small today, when their goals are these things. Building buildings instead of building people. And it's Christians too. This is why a Christian can be saved 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, never win a soul to Christ. Hey, these churches are filled with saved, born-again people who have taken the devil's Bible and listened to that crowd of lies, and they have given heed to the false lips, they have given ear to the naughty. Now that is explained, tongue. And the effect today, the end result, is now a church that has completely lost its way. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 says that a church that is lukewarm, it's neither cold nor hot. Boy, if that isn't it today. No doctrine, but they're not an apostasy. They're kind of right in the marshmallow middle. He says in verse 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. There it is. Last week. That thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that thy shame and I had naked do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou might see. He says the words wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the church of Jesus Christ. That's today. In Laodicea, when a guy speaks today, excellent speech becometh not a fool. Their lessons, sermons, lectures have nothing to do with God in the Bible. The Word of God is reduced to a system of professional terms. The young man is impressed by the great swelling words and giving ear to it. And then gets enticed a couple of weeks ago into a secret society that's, that basically destroys his faith in the Word of God. The Alexandrian cult. Now he forsakes the plain, simple, common truth of the Word of God for professional liar's terminology. Sprinkle in a BA or an MA or a PhD... And their spiritual apostasy is set. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 18 says they speak great swelling words of vanity. They allure them with the lust of the flesh. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.12, the greatest handbook in the Bible on ministry, seeing then we have such hope, we use great 
plainness of speech. Now there you are. Take your choice. When you go to Bible college and these professional liars, they talk about the Bible, it becomes a, 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 the Gnostics of the second and third century. A secret language. You must pay them to get God's word. Where I will teach you on Thursday night about angels, they have to call it angelology. Where I will talk to you about man and his problems, they will teach you and call it anthropology. When I talk about God's simple plan of salvation, they call it sodiantology. When I talk about church and church history, they'll call it eschatology. When I talk about Jesus and the life of Christ, they'll talk about it Christology. When I talk about the Holy Spirit of God out of John chapter 14 or 16, they have to call it pneumonology. When I talk about believing your Bible and defending your Bible, they have to call it hermeneutics. When I talk about expose, or, or apologetics, excuse me, when I talk about expounding the Bible or teaching your Bible, then it's hermeneutics. Everything has to be professional. Everything's got to have an ology on it. I don't know who that guy was. He's the same guy or counter to the guy who started all those Middle East countries named Stan. <laughs> Afghanistan, Pakistan, Uzbekistan. <laughs> so it's angelology, Christology, Sodentology. Everything's got an ology on it. It's almost like, and the people, you know what they do? They go spend all of their money. 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dollars going to an institute that's supposed to teach them the Bible, and when they come out, they come out talking like nobody in the Bible ever talked. And nobody seems to get that. And the worst case is they come out without a Bible. You see, this is this is what has happened today. They've bought into a, the lies of the Laodicean church. They've given heed to false lips and given ear to a naughty tongue. The devils. And today, right now, this is, this is the state of Christianity in all America and all around the world. You see, the book of Proverbs goes to the heart of the issues with man. And the heart of the issues of man will always be the Word of God, what he does with it. The Word of God will cut right to his heart about the book. Right where he lives. Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, uh, 12, and 13, it says that the word of God uh, discerns the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It says, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. It strips all of the false religious garbage we wrap ourselves in. That just shows us where we're really at. That's why men don't like the Bible. When I was in school, I had to read a book. probably read it too. It was a book called The Emperor's New Clothes. And it was a king one time who, who a guy came in and, and told him and got him to believe that, you know, that the clothes that he made for him were just beautiful. But they, they didn't exist. They were invisible. So the king got naked and he pretended he was putting all these clothes on it. And the king was walking around. And he was portraying everybody, look at me, look at these beautiful clothes. He had believed what the guy said. He actually deluded himself in thinking that he had clothes on when he did not. And he walked all around his court saying, will you like my... And everybody was afraid to tell him, hey, you're naked. <laughs> and so everybody said, wow, those are the greatest clothes in the world. Who's your tailor? You know, everybody was afraid to tell him. And he walked around naked. 
pretending he was clothed, when in reality, he didn't have a stitch of clothes on. And God's people walk around today in this church age like they're going to be clothed at the judgment seat of Christ. And preachers today are afraid to tell them they're naked. They don't want to hurt their income. They don't want you to leave their church. They don't want you to get upset. They want to tell you just what you want to hear. But God's people today are that emperor. And they're walking around thinking that they've clothed themselves with the things that they do. And when they get to the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to find out they're naked. Book of Proverbs is an incredible.